Hi, it's Chris Seta. I simply can't thank you all enough for your continued support of the show. If you haven't already done so, please take a second to subscribe as I have some incredible interviews lined up in the coming months. Now, I realize this installment is a little past due, but the release schedule should be back on track. So without further ado, we're on to this brand new episode. I had one of my mentors say to me one time, he said, Tito, you know, when you become an orthodontist, you're going to be an influence on people. It's going to be your choice as to what type of influence you want to be. Do you want to be a positive one? Do you want to be a negative one? What kind of influence do you want to be on people? I'm Dr. Chris Seta, and I'm shining a light on the innovators of our profession. Welcome to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. On today's show, my guest is Dr. Tito Norris. Ever wonder why you come up with all your best ideas in the shower? Or maybe it's when you're driving home or on a jog. I certainly do. Recent research in the field of neuroscience has shown that a portion of the prefrontal cortex responsible for decisions, goals, and behaviors actually has to turn off for our minds to become creative. In today's day and age of never-ending to-do lists and incessant notifications, it's hard to let your mind zone out. The fact is, we all have the capacity to be creative. Sometimes we have to force ourselves to get off that proverbial hamster wheel, and counterintuitively, we become more productive. Today's episode features a perfect example of finding a balance between work and life. For those of you unfamiliar with Dr. Tito Norris, he's a six foot three redhead with an unmistakably witty sense of humor. Tito is known for his efficient office systems at his practice in San Antonio, Texas, as well as his passive self-ligating bracket system, now with Dynaflex. But Tito not only works hard, he plays hard too. He's designed his schedule to take a week off every month. With that free time, not only can he be creative and come up with cool new ideas, but ski, swim, travel with his family, or just enjoy life. As you'll hear on today's episode, an incredibly tragic event in Tito's childhood led him to appreciate living every day to its fullest potential. Welcome to the podcast, Tito. How are you today? Thanks for having me. I'm great. So we have to set the scene for our listeners. Why don't you tell everyone where we are? We're in beautiful St. Petersburg, Florida. That's right. The Sunshine City. Thank you so much. You and your lovely wife, Simone, came to visit us, which I was thrilled and quite honored that you guys flew in today. We're super glad to be here. Yeah. And so we're hanging out in my apartment complex. We have a really nice club room upstairs overlooking Tampa Bay and a nice rooftop pool area. And we have a beverage, don't we? We do. This cocktail is called a Tom Collins a la Hemingway. People asked for the recipe. I will gladly provide it. Two ounces of gin. I used Hendrix. Four ounces of coconut water. Uh, three quarters ounce of lime juice. And a couple dashes of Angostura bitters. And it you, is lovely. Think? Lovely. I yes. think it's nice and refreshing for it a is. hot summer day. It is. It's, it's a nice cold drink. I couldn't really go with an old fashioned today. Tito, I want to talk a little bit about your upbringing. I know you grew up in Texas. Tell us about your town where you grew up. Sure. I'm from a little town called Kingsville, Texas, where I was born in the late 60s. And, and Kingsville, back then, you know, it was a small town in Texas. It was still very segregated. And so my mom was really uh, an advocate for inclusion and equality in, in the early 70s. 
And uh, so she, my mom's a teacher. Teacher. And she, she chose to teach at what was traditionally a, a black uh, elementary school. Mm-hmm. And so almost daily, she would uh, bring kids home after school, kids who had a single parent taking care of them. And mm-hmm. so she would, you know, basically take care of them until the mom got off of work. And so we'd have these, you know, new friends that we could play with at the house. Yeah. And and she would teach them how to play tennis and we'd go skateboarding and she taught a lot of them how to swim. In fact, and the place where she taught them how to swim was the Elks Club of Kingsville, which was a very uh, just openly racist organization and she would just literally just take no bull off from anybody and would just march right in there with whoever she wanted to and use the pool when she wanted and um you know she caught some heat from it but she was just unflappable when it, wow. when, it, when it came to equality and i think that that had a very strong influence on on me you know throughout my life I imagine late 1960s or maybe early 70s Texas, I would imagine there was quite a bit of segregation and racism yeah. at that point. And True. so the fact that your mom sort of went against the grain there, I mean, just speaks to her spirit and how tough and true to her values she was. Absolutely. And then um, I lost my mom uh, when I was 13. Oh, really? And she was, she was 46 years old. And uh, so that, wow. that really influenced me as well. And because it made me realize from a very early age that, um, you know, we're all here on a lease program, right? It's and, very true. And so it really made me value uh, relationships from a very early age. It helped me um, really f- discover what's important in life and prioritize that. Um, maybe more so than, you know, my, my friends who came from nuclear families and didn't have that, that experience. It was a tough experience to go through, but yet I think it's really benefited me in the fact that, you know, I've got a lot of really deep friendships and I think I perhaps learned to value those friendships earlier in life than some of my colleagues. I can't even really fathom losing a parent at that age. And it must've just been such a incredibly sad and probably dark period for a while and then something must have turned the corner for you that like you said you almost took it as like a life lesson yes um yeah i mean for sure and um actually when i turned 46 it hit me kind of again but you know at that point i had I had three children of my own and i just thought to myself like oh my gosh what would it be like to have you know like left the planet right now at this point in my life you know like oh my God, i had all these you know dreams and, and things unfulfilled I, I totally wouldn't be ready but the worst part would have been just you know leaving these children and, and my five you know my mom had five children that she left and so actually my daughter who's a filmmaker uh, ended up making kind of a documentary of of that, yeah, you know, of me turning forty-six, and we went and interviewed a lot of my mom's friends, and oh, and, that's so nice. and so it yeah. actually turned out to be a, a very healing uh, project for, yeah. for me. Oh. So it was great. That's great. We were chatting before, sort of on the way from the airport, that just sort of by coincidence, I've known you for years now, but I never knew this about you. But your father was an eyes too. Yeah. So my father was an optometrist. So my father grew up in a small town, and his father owned a lumber yard. Mm-hmm. So he grew up with a very strong work ethic because he worked in his father's lumberyard from a very early age. 
And so he felt that we should be instilled with that same work ethic. And so starting in kindergarten, really, by the time we you know, woke up, made our beds, fed the dogs, took out the trash. And then we went to his office and mm-hmm. mopped and cleaned the floors and took out the trash. And then we walked to kindergarten. Okay. Oh, wow. So that's the kind of work ethic that I grew up with. And that has really served me well throughout my life because, you know, I wasn't always the smartest kid in the class, uh, but I could sure as heck work as I had, I had tenacity, I had grit, you know? Yeah. And so in addition to being an optometrist, my father had his own lab. And so uh, I kind of grew up working in his lab and mm-hmm. kind of building, crafting lenses and you know, assembling eyeglasses and things like that. And so my father's pretty mechanically inclined. And even around the house, you know, we had, we had some land, we had some horses. I'd be out with him mending fences and you know, fixing stuff. And, and so all of those experiences, I think, uh, are part of what led me to this sort of like mechanical way of thinking, which I think eventually led me to... Uh, studying engineering in college, mechanical engineering. Yeah, so you went to UT Austin. I believe your major was biology, but you had a minor in mechanical engineering, which I think is super cool. So uh, I actually started off in mechanical engineering. Oh, did you? Okay. And then I was working part-time, and for the first time in my life, I had, I had a job, I had money, and I had uh, dental insurance. And so I was like, well, listen, I've always wanted to get braces, so like, pff, you know, I'm going to get braces. Yeah. So I went and I got braces, and I'm sitting there you know, in this orthodontic chair, and I'm like looking around and I'm kind of doing the numbers. Like, like the six chairs, you know, you see a patient cycling through here every 30 minutes. You know, I'm paying this much per month. I was like, this guy's doing really well. He gets to make his own hours. He gets to work with these, you know, good looking women. <laughs> and Not a bad um, deal, right? Not a, not a bad deal. It's not a bad gig. And it's also orthodontics. It's like engineering, but in the mouth. It is. Yeah, it you is. know, I mean, and that's what I was studying. Forces, moments, vectors, ratios, you know, all the stuff that, that I use on a daily basis. And so I was being trained in college on how to think in three dimensions. You know, I was trained to think on a Cartesian coordinate system. And so that early training, I think, has really paid off handsomely for me in figuring out mechanics for my whole career. It's been great. I see that as almost like a common thread to many things that have happened throughout your career, at least in terms of inventions and innovations, uh, just sort of the engineering aspect of it. But from there, I believe uh, dental school, you went to UT Health Science Center in uh, San Antonio, right? That's right. And that's where I met my lovely wife, who was going to medical school in the same building. And so we kind of you know, saw each other in the hallways and uh, started dating in uh, 1990. And then we were married two years later in 1992. And then I guess it was her residency that took you guys to... DC, is that right? That's correct. So she had been through medical school on an Air Force scholarship. Mm-hmm. And so they sent her to Washington, D.C. for her to do her residency. And, and actually, I didn't even know, you know that she was in the Air Force when I first met her. And so when they sent her to D.C., I hadn't really applied to any ortho programs in the area. So I ended up doing a, a general practice residency, which was, which was a great experience uh, yeah. at, the, at the VA hospital there in D.C. I did a GPR, too. I don't know if you knew that. No, I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, I practiced general for three years. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So I did your GPR. And then from there... Yeah. So I was going to be in D.C. for two more years. I was able to apply to the only program that was in D.C., which was Howard University. Yeah. We learned from our last episode with Brian Lockhart that Howard is considered uh, HBCU, historically black college and university. And for those of you who don't know Tito, I know we're on audio, but you're, what, six foot three... Ginger, handsome guy. <laughs> I don't know about that last part, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, Howard is a very diverse program. 
Yeah, I mean, they make no bones about it, right? Their goal and their mission is to produce more black orthodontists, right? And mm-hmm. I'm totally behind that mission because uh, statistically speaking, they're, they're way behind. Right. Uh, and, and that's why I'm eternally grateful to the university for accepting me. Our class was a bit unique in that uh, we had one uh, out of six residents, uh, one of whom was black and he uh, went back to Jamaica. We had got it from India, you know, two girls who were Chinese who were raised in the Philippines. And then another Caucasian male and myself. So it was a super diverse program. Very. Yeah. Very cool. So at the time of your graduation, I believe your wife had to fulfill her Air Force commitments. That's correct. If I'm correct. So you guys left for Japan, of all places. And that must have been such an incredible experience. Was it three years you were stationed over there? It was. It was absolutely lovely. I mean, the first thing I have to say is that the the people... um, literally revered us. I mean, the purpose of the base was to protect northern Japan specifically because we're very close to Korea at that point. It was a communications base and an F-16 fighter base. Okay, so they felt very grateful that we were there. Mm -hmm. And that showed everywhere you went from grocery stores to restaurants to just people on the street. You know, they were very grateful that we, that Mm. we were there. And and then the friendships that I made there have been just long-lasting. I mean, uh, we left Japan 22 years ago, and I still communicate weekly with you know, a lot of my friends. Oh, that's so incredible! There. And so, and you know, but beyond that, it was just a beautiful country with mountains and you know volcanoes and uh, just hiking and lakes, uh, rivers, surfing, scuba diving. That's really where I fell in love with snow skiing. I had 17 ski resorts within three hours of my house. Oh, wow. And we got an incredible amount of snow and I started skiing, you know, 20, 25 days a year. And that's kind of, you know, how I I really became a ski addict. Very cool. And so I know you got out of the service probably like late 90s. I think it was 1998 that you and Simone moved back to San Antonio and you set up Stone Oak Orthodontics. That's right. So she was still in the military and was working there for a year uh, while I was setting up my practice. And so therefore we had one income to live off of. And that was really nice, especially that first year. And yeah, I mean, I I definitely had a a vision for how I wanted my practice to be. I had worked, even in residency, I had worked kind of nights and weekends for a practice in the D.C. area that, that was open nights and weekends. And so I actually had quite a bit of experience in a private practice setting. And so I knew what I liked and didn't like. I definitely had a vision for my practice and what I wanted it to be and how I wanted to mold it. I think it was uh, 2010, but you got your building LEED certified. Why don't you explain what that means? So in 2010, I had an opportunity to essentially double the size of my office. Okay, I was in 2,600 square feet and I had a chance to take on the adjacent space and go to 5,200 square feet. And so... I was, I was an Eagle Scout as a kid. And one of the Sorry. tenets of being a scout is stewardship. Mm-hmm. Right? And I feel very strongly that you know, stewardship of the earth is an important thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had one of my mentors say to me one time, he said, Tito, you know, when you become an orthodontist, you're going to be an influence on people. Mm-hmm. It's going to be your choice as to what type of influence you want to be. Do you want to be a positive one? Do you want to be a negative one? What kind of influence do you want to be on people? So I took that as, and uh, I took that, that advice to heart. It's a profound heart. statement. Yeah. It, it really is. And I took that advice to heart and, uh, and I said, listen, I have this opportunity and it's going to cost me about 10% more to do this you know, right. And so lead is leadership in engineering and environmental design. And so essentially it's the government's stamp of approval that you've built a, a green building. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it goes much further than just insulation and solar panels and things like that. Okay. It, it goes into like natural lighting, uh, low VOC paints, um, 
a place to park a bicycle, a place to have a shower, you know, if you want to commute to work. So it's much more of a lifestyle and, and, a, and a daily working environment type of thing rather than simply just using, you know, such and such. So it's beyond energy efficiency. Way beyond energy efficiency, yes. And then last year, I just completed uh, ground-up construction of a second office, and of course, it's LEED certified as well. That's amazing. And so, like, how tedious of a process is it to get your building LEED certified? It's tough. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I mean, you feel like you're kind of back in dental school, and you got to check off the boxes, and you got to earn your your points, Mm -hmm. and... uh, so, you know, point for this, point for that. And there's different levels of, of points that you can accumulate. And so it's a bit of a challenge, but I had a, an amazing, you know, architect and it's, it's a, really a feather in their cap and it's something they want to do and they want to be known for doing. And it's a differentiator for them. It's such an incredible thing. And do you know any other orthodontists, at least in the States, that have LEED certified buildings? I actually do. So Jasmine Gordon in the Bay Area. Yeah, uh, she does. And I'm sure that there's a couple of more um, by now. Fantastic. But uh, yeah, it's a wonderful thing. So early on in your practice, you were heavily involved with Invisalign and with the Ormco Damon Group. I know we were chatting a little bit. You said you had quite a relationship with Dwight Damon. Yeah, I really admire Dwight and and what he has really given to the profession in terms of passive self-lighting technology. I I think that in and of itself is a system because, you know, I've got got seven clinical assistants and, you know, some are left-handed, some are right-handed, some lig tie above the wire, some below the wire, some finish on the mesial, some on the distal. And so all of those variabilities, believe it or not, are are non-systematic. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so what I love about passive self-ligation is that the door is either open or it's closed. You You get two options, right? And so it doesn't matter who ties it in, it's going to be exactly the same. Right. And so I love systems. I love predictability in my systems and in my cases. And so I adopted that technology, the, the passive self-ligation technology in 1997 uh, when I first met Dwight. And strangely enough, back in the day, they actually used to make an 018 version uh, of, of that bracket. Oh, they did? Yes. And so that's what I used. And I filled the slot with an 1825 wire in an 1825 slot. And this is one of the little dirty secrets of the business. And that is that there's tolerances in yes. both the slot and the wire. And so if you're a wire manufacturer and you have to have a tolerance, mm-hmm. okay, so you're making 1825 wires, right? Mm-hmm. Can you really afford to make a wire that's slightly too big? No, it's got to be the other way. Because it, because it won't fit the slot. I always knew there were tolerances with the slot size, but I had no idea in, in the wires too. That's right. So wires are traditionally undersized, okay? Wow. So for the first 10 years of my practice, of my private practice, I was treating and finishing cases in an 1825 bracket in an 1825 wire, and I had just this beautiful torque control, right? Mm -hmm. Well, then they stopped making passive self-location brackets in 018. Hmm. Right, And so my hand was forced. I had to use an 022. Well, come to find out that 80 to 90% of the world uses an 022 slot bracket. But the thing is, uh, only 1% of the wire sold in the world is 21 by 25. Which is crazy, right? Like right. you would think you want to fill the slot to right. express the prescription. Right, right. So this really ties in nicely with, uh, I think when we sort of met, 2016 Mid-Atlantic Ortho, I had a product that I was attempting to develop and you had a bracket system. Yeah, that's right. So I, I just said, listen, you know, if the world likes to use a 1925 wire, right, which is the, the wire that I'm comfortable you know, using and bending and finishing so forth, wire, finishing yeah. wire, right? So why not just make a bracket 
that fits the wires that we like to use, right? And this was not a new concept. I actually had this concept all the way back in residency when I was working in private practice, you know, mm-hmm. and the, the doctor I was working with was an 022 slot bracket, yet there was no 2125 wire in the whole practice. I'm like, well, why is it that we're not filling slot? And they're like, the wires are too heavy. You know, they break brackets, they burn roots. roots yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, then why don't we just have a bracket that fits the wires that we like to use? Like, well, because it's just not available. And I love that, you know, it took a resident to sort of question this, right? right. To sort of look at it from a new perspective. Right, Because right. sometimes when you're in practice for so long, you don't even question it. Right, right. It's just, it's just been that way for 150 years. Right. Know, that we've been using the same slot size that Edward Engel was using back when he was, you know, spinning gold wire back in the day. Yeah. And it just stayed that way just simply because of tradition and no other reason. So your bracket system that came out with Mid-Atlantic Ortho, MAO, who was eventually sold to Dynaflex, but the bracket system, uh, how are we going to say this? Well, it was fully integrated <laughs> by Tito. Let's put it that way. Fully That's, integrated by Tito. You can, you can read like the acronym it. there. You can yeah. read the acronym. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, the reason we're being a little bit dodgy is um, while the bracket had incredible success in the first what year and a half, two years with Mid Atlantic, you guys eventually ran into a couple, we'll call them obstacles, right? So yeah. there was an alleged patent infringement by a certain leading company and then an alleged trademark infringement by another company. And that was probably tough to navigate. The both of which were very tough to navigate. And, you know, I'm a man of principles and you know, I went a big bully. Okay. Uh, simply tries to just run over you because they can, because they've got you know the resource. I learned a lot about the orthodontic business, and it's it's yeah, dirty. Sure. It's oh. dirty, you know. And when someone starts appreciating success, uh, the bullies don't like it, and they're willing to do whatever it takes to squash them, including drowning them in um, legal fees to the tune of fifty thousand dollars a month. You know. Yeah. Wow. And so that's kind of what it was all about, just trying to, to drown you know, this little mom-and-pop company with some legal fees. And, you know, I mean, ultimately it worked. Basically what came out of these two different legal issues was that you guys agreed to stop selling the bracket. True, but yet the cat was out of the bag, and, uh, and there's enough doctors out there, including myself, who were able to, to treat and finish enough cases to demonstrate that reducing that bracket slot was truly superior. And in my own practice, we actually did a, a study. And what I did was I compared 500 of the cases that I finished in 022 by 028 to 500 cases we finished with 020 by 026, right? Mm-hmm. And we actually matched them by you know age and classification and everything else because we just had a, bit of a big sample size to choose from. And so out of that 1,000 cases, what we found was that the smaller bracket slot size, it, it treated out 26% more efficiently. So we actually, on average, saved five visits per patient. Which is pretty significant. Which is pretty enormous. Yeah. Right. And that's a retrospective study. So we weren't even really focused on that at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, and so the only thing that we changed was just the bracket slot, right? right? That's the only thing. All the wires were the same. All the mechanics were the same. All the doctors were the same. So with that pretty convincing data, you know, we were able to to sort of go back into the, the drawing board and retool this bracket and, and really make some significant improvements and things that we learned, you know, uh, after the first iteration. And of course, Dynaflex has been just amazing with their support uh, throughout this whole project. And now it's relaunched as the Norris 2026 system. The Norris 2026, which is fantastic. And I love that your name is sort of worked into the, there, right? Like sort of the Damon bracket, Pitts bracket. 
I actually had some reservations about that. Did you? Uh, Why? Well, because I, I didn't want it to be about me, right? I wanted to make a contribution to the orthodontic profession. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I, I thought that the fully integrated by Tito was a little more subtle. <laughs> uh, and I didn't mind being kind of subtle. But ultimately, there was kind of a committee meeting and they, they, conv- want they convinced they want me. Convince. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I felt the same way that some people call the precision buttons, they call them set of buttons. And I'm yeah. like, I don't think I'm that, uh, yeah. I don't know, vain that we got to call them that. But I love that your name is now attached to it. I'm getting used to it. You're getting used to it, which is fantastic. So you talked about this latest generation has some other improvements. I, I do want to mention that you guys made some really cool improvements yeah. to the sliding door. You want to touch on that? Well, the door is... Just really, really cool for a couple of reasons. You know, number one, it's it's basically the full width of the bracket, so you get amazing rotational control. All right. Number two, it's got this like self-opening and self-closing aspect to it, so that when you open the door and you get it past the fifty percent mark, it actually opens by itself the rest of the way. It's almost like a sliding kitchen drawer. You no know? way. That's a cool feature. But actually, the feature I'm most excited about is the fact that the leading edge of the door mm-hmm. is rounded like the tip of a ski mm-hmm. or like the tip of a surfboard, right? And so, so as... it's not like a 90-degree hard angle. That's correct. It actually has a radius to it. So that as the door is closing, if your wire is not fully seated, it'll actually help... Push it right seat, into the seat, slot. Right. That's and, awesome. And it's particularly helpful if you pair that bracket with our rounded edge wires. So we have mm-hmm. these rectangular, rounded rectangular is what we call it, wires. And so that combination of those two rounded surfaces uh, really, really help close that door just buttery smooth. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. I, I want to mention a couple other features. So you guys got away from stainless steel using a cobalt chromium alloy for people with nickel sensitivity. Is that, that correct? That's correct. And also there's been a study that published uh, showing that chromium cobalt has superior sliding mechanics than stainless steel. Oh, okay. So Didn't know that. Another side benefit. There you go. You guys have a universal premolar or bicuspid hook. Uh, so that reduces inventory. Yeah. And it's also helps with premolars that are rotated mm-hmm. because, you know, inevitably it's going to be rotated in the direction where that hook's going to be touching the gingiva. Right? Good but, point. So by yeah. moving it to the middle, I mean, you're just going to be able to get it on more teeth. So uh, smart, Tito. Yeah. And then you guys have sort of uh, deepened the undercut tie wings, too, for elastic chain and ligature ties around oh. the bracket. And Yep. And then one of the other cool things is they're gingerly offset. Okay. So, you know, a lot of times we're tuning teenagers that have premolars that aren't fully erupted or, you know, have not gone through, um, you know, passive eruption. Right. By being gingerly offset, we're able to get the bracket in a better position on more patients. Okay. Perfect. So that, that's helpful. But not only that, but the occlusal aspect of the pad mm-hmm. is now flat. It's a straight line. Mm-hmm. So it really helps with lining that up with the marginal, marginal ridges. Ridge. Yeah. And so your bracket placement on your premolars is so much better. Oh, uh, that's awesome. It's a really cool feature. When we come back, in just a moment, we discuss Tito's thoughts on work-life balance, as well as his various inventions and business ventures, including a very unique underwear line. Stay with us. You're listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. Kind support for this podcast comes from Lightforce Orthodontics. Dr. Alfred Griffin and his team at Lightforce Ortho have developed the world's only fully custom bracket system. Each bracket is fully customized based on your treatment plan and your patient's unique tooth morphology. Complete customization enables your cases to not only finish faster, but with even better results. Head over to lightforceortho.com to request your demo today. 
Mention Illuminate Podcast and you'll even receive some super cool Light Force swag. Support also comes from Hip Creative. Ready to turn prospects into patients for good? Well, check out Hip Creative. Attracting new patients requires not just a plan, but implementation. HIP realized this and developed a program to integrate team training, transparency, and accountability into your individual practice. These proven strategies put you back in control of finding and keeping the right patients while organically growing your practice for long-term success. To find out more, visit hip.agency. Welcome back to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. I'm Dr. Chris Seta. So it turns out the Norris 2026 bracket system wasn't Tito's first invention. When he was in dental school, he came up with an idea for a fog-free dental mirror. So as a junior dental student, you know, for the first time I was working in the mouth, right? You're no longer working on the deniform with ivorine teeth. We actually had, you know, real teeth, real saliva, real, real human water, real human. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so what I learned very quickly is that if you're working indirectly, in the, especially in the maxillary arch, that your mirror just fogs up like immediately. Oh, yeah. And so what I did was I actually went, and I think I may have even gone to a, like a pet store or something like that and bought some, <laughs> some tubing for like a, like a fish tank. Is you know? that right? And I broke into the dental school at midnight or something like that. And uh, I rigged up my little dental unit using this little tubing, and I just simply taped it to my mirror so that I had a constant stream of air blowing on my mirror. Uh, okay. So smart. And so this actually got me through junior and senior year of, of dental school. And in fact, I ended up being like the Vernetti Award winner, which is like, you know, for the uh, thing. <laughs> I don't think it's because I had really the best hands. I think I could see better than anybody else. You know? <laughs> the only uh, one that could see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so it was kind of an unfair advantage. But um, so that concept actually is what led to now a product that's called Ariel. And it's a product that I essentially gifted to my partner, Dr. Ray Caesar, and he has really taken it and run with it uh, onto the next level. And, and so he now has this uh, fog-free dental mirror for you know dentists and orthodontists, or mostly dentists though, to do dentistry with that basically keeps a dry field on your mirror all the time. Oh, so cool. And Ray is a super nice guy. And right. super proud of him for really following up with that and taking it through to fruition. Yeah. So that's where the concept of the fog-free mirror was born. Now, mm-hmm. like many products, you think of something and then someone else has actually already made it. So when I started using this concept for orthodontic records, I actually learned that someone else had the same idea. It's a little machine that's about the size of a deck of cards. And inside of that is two things. Number one, a light, okay. which helps to light up Illuminate the mouth. the mirror, yeah. Okay. And that helps, uh, especially if a lot of our, our clinical cameras are using an autofocus feature, right? And so yeah. having that light in there actually allows the, the camera, camera to, to focus. Yeah. On, okay. on, right. And the second feature is, is the little mini fan, which simply blows air on that mirror and keeps it from fogging up, right, while you're taking your buckle and occlusal shots. Mm-hmm. And you can talk to me all day about yes I can take you know peekaboo shots of the buckle but you're never going to get the shot that we can get with this amazing fog-free mirror and the reason is that we developed the shape of this mirror with Rita Bauer who is a world-famous dental photographer out of Toronto so she and I actually developed these mirror shapes to maximize the the buckle shots and the occlusal shots and when you combine that 
with this fog-free mirror kit, you really just have this amazing um, technology that really takes your records to the next level, right? And so I'm all about differentiation, right? So mm-hmm. what separates me? What makes me different from the next guy down the street? And if during every single step of the new patient process, if I can differentiate myself, well, then, you know, I've raised the level. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what I hope is that listeners of the podcast will take this technology and embrace this technology. I get nothing from these fog-free mirrors. I don't have any kind of interest in it, but Dynaflex does sell it. And, you know, the people that have embraced this little technique or technology, I mean, they love it. And they actually just can't do without it now because it's really up their game in terms of their records. Yeah. Uh, and the photography that you're able to take is just so much better. You know, I love this idea. I'm going to totally check this out. I think I need to purchase one like uh, tomorrow, basically. Yeah. Uh, but I only take buckle shots with a mirror. I'm a huge proponent of clinical photography. I know some people are uh, just scanning patients, but. You know, you mentioned records, but photography to me goes beyond having good records for maybe legal purposes. It's your marketing on your website, your social media, uh, if you're into speaking or want to be published by a journal. I mean, there's so many reasons to document your work, really. And we actually take photos of every patient at every visit. Do you? And and so that in and of itself is, yes, it's a medical legal document, but I can't tell you every single day when I'm talking with a dentist about you know, where we are in treatment with this patient. I mean, I pull up those images and I know exactly where we are in treatment. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about a couple other ventures you have here. Sounds great. Let's go. You mentioned, you told me you have 10 different businesses. List them off. Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I get lost. The bracket is kind of like a business in and of itself. I actually used to have kind of an online business selling some orthodontic products. And, and so that kind of falls under that sort of category. Of course, I've got the orthodontic practice, right? That's Sure. Yeah. I've got a consulting company. So for many years, I've been a key opinion leader for a number of different manufacturers and, and companies you know, throughout the years. And I've done quite a bit of teaching uh, Seattle Study Club, that kind of stuff. And so all of that Fantastic. really falls underneath that lecturing okay. consulting company, right? Um, got a couple of real estate companies, ones on uh, residential uh, real estate rental homes mm-hmm. and then commercial real estate as well. Um, my wife and I own a, a second home, and so we have uh, you know, VRBO and Airbnb sort of a company to, to help us manage that. What are we at, six here? Uh, we're at six, yeah. <laughs> um, when I built the new office just last year, I had came up with this idea, and I tried to look at it from the patient's perspective. Like, what do patients want when they're in your waiting room? This is, of course, in the, in the pre-COVID era, right? Right, right. They want free coffee, and they want screaming hot Wi-Fi, and they want juice for their devices. Yeah. Right? So... I built this little device that kind of slips in right in between your chairs in your waiting room, and it's called the juice box. The and, juice box. And it's got two different ways you can charge your devices. One is through Qi charging technology, where you Which simply... Which is like the contactless, right? That's right. Okay. You just set your phone down, and it looks like a little coaster on the device. As soon as you put your phone down, it just lights up and starts charging it, and it's a fast charge. Mm-hmm. And of course, the other is a wired charge. And so we have these wires that are plugged into the front of the unit and they're agnostic. In other words, they've got three types of number. If you're an Apple guy or an Android, you can can charge any kind of device with it. And so it's kind of cool um, because we were able to just kind of slip those between every other chair and then and everybody loves them. They rave about them. We did that you know, for the new office and also for the existing office. We retrofitted our existing office. And you could retrofit any office because they're only like five inches wide. Sounds great. So where can people find the juice box? At thejuicebox.com. Juice bo- <laughs> and you own the domain, even better. <laughs> yeah. 
That's yeah. awesome. So is it like dental offices too, then, or well, medical offices? That are yeah, any so, kind of, yeah right. really. It could be dental offices, medical offices. It could be um, Quickie Lube. I mean, it could be Dialysis An Center. Airport. Anywhere yeah. that people wait, right? They're going to want juice for their devices. Such yeah. a cool idea. And I'm sorry for jumping in here, but you own, or at least you're a distributor for a flatulence-free underwear company. Yeah. So it's true. Called Shreddies. It's um, <laughs> so... I have the U.S. distribution rights for ShreddiesUSA.com. ShreddiesUSA. And you have to look this up on YouTube, which I certainly did. It's sort of hilarious, but there's an activated carbon filter in the seat of the pants. That's right. So if one passes wind, it just filters out the noxious fumes. That's right. And the fabric was actually developed by the British Special Forces. No, it wasn't. It was. (laughs) It's the fabric that they use in their chemical warfare suits. No way. It's a very high-tech fabric, and they took that fabric to a design college in London and had them design some very fashionable uh, underwear out of it. And so I got wind of this (laughs) (laughs) and uh, basically became, through happenstance, became a U.S. distributor for it. And I have a partner in the business. Uh, Uh, But I'm so glad that this, like, very high-tech military technology is going to farting right now. Absolutely. Well, my point is that, listen, all orthodontists need to own at least four pair of shreddies, right? Because if you're working four days a week, you need a a pair for every day. Because, I mean, come on, let's face it. Where does the patient's head sit? I mean, I I guess I didn't think of it. Yeah. I mean, it's right there. I fortunately (laughs) have never let one slip in the office. But, I mean, if I had shreddies, you could, you know, it could just... Once you get over 50, my friend. uh, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So you're wearing shreddies right now? That's all I wear. And have you passed gas? Um, You know what? It's kind of funny, Chris, because, you know, you're so comfortable in your shreddies that you kind of forget about it. You really just... Yeah, you no longer have to to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't muffle the sound. I guess you still get the sound effect. Yeah, yeah. We control the flavor. You control the sound. (laughs) (laughs) That's so great. Yeah. So if you're interested in buying shreddies, which this is going to be the new orthodontic fad, I think. I need a pair for sure. Where can we get the shreddies from? ShreddiesUSA.com. <laughs> ShreddiesUSA.com. Fantastic. I need a juice box. I need shreddies. Yeah. And the Norris 2026 brackets. And you also need yourself some uh, aligner concierge. So uh, this is a really cool company. You launched this, what, maybe three years ago? That's about right. And I helped you beta test aligner concierge. But basically, one of the frustrations, I think, with Invisalign and ClinCheck is just going back and forth so many times with the technician to sort of set up the case in your particular way in terms of your attachments and how you like to align the teeth. And staging. And, staging yeah. and, and all that important stuff. And so this was a great concept. And when you have sort of an innovative mind, you come up with a lot of ideas and sometimes they're already done. I think this was an idea that came to you and I was like, Tito, I sort of had this idea too. <laughs> and you beat me to it. Uh, but yeah, I remember that conversation. Yeah, yeah. Basically what you've done is you've hired... I believe orthodontists or dentists, right? Overseas. Outsource, or, overseas. Or, or, orthodontists, actually. Orthodontists, okay. Yeah. Basically, what they're able to do is take the initial first stages of ClinCheck and massage it and really set it up to your preferences and your liking. And, right. and that way, when you get the case, it's almost as if you had an in-house Invisalign technician really working the case for you. Am it's I explaining al- that correctly? Exactly. It's almost like you have an associate doctor okay. right there in your practice who knows the way you think, the way you like to have this, your cases set up. Yeah. And the beauty of this is that you are assigned one doctor and that doctor will always be your doctor. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so they will learn exactly how you like it. You give them feedback, you know, and they continually learn ex- exactly like the way you like 
okay, so set, what kind of attachments you like? How, how do you like things staged? You know, what do you do for this and that? And, and so once you guys get calibrated, it's just, it's so nice to get these cases back. You know, first they come back from Costa Rica, right? And then they, mm-hmm. then they go through a line of concierge. And, you know, and then when they get back into your, and it's, it's all color-coded, okay? So keep it very, very organized uh, within your uh, ClinCheck inbox. And then when you're ready to approve the case, you pull it up. You know, it's either done or it's really close to being done. Yeah. It just makes ClinCheck so much easier, you know, because I used to spend a lot of family time doing ClinCheck's. Right. And I just don't do that anymore because of a longer concierge. You're really known for your ability to establish a good work-life balance. You know, I can tell your family time is important to you, which is a wonderful thing, and you don't want to encroach on that. So tell us, when did this concept start? I know a lot of people, when they get into practice, they're just sort of burning midnight oil. Did you always have that balance in your life? So when you first opened an orthodontic practice, I just don't think there's any way around it. I I definitely burned the midnight oil. I had to you know, just spend the extra hours and go to trade show or, or, you know, just like do all the stuff, right? Right. right, To get the practice off its feet and financially healthy. But pretty soon out, I would say within the first five years of my practice, I started basically taking off a week every month. Okay. Which is so cool. You know, it wasn't always the same week. It wasn't always like the third week of the month or whatever. But, you know, so I started working basically four days a week with a week off every month. And so I essentially averaged somewhere between 12 and 15 weeks off per year. And use that time to sharpen the saw, you know, to go to meetings, to go to study clubs, to travel with my family, with my kids. And do I regret that time that I took off? Absolutely not. And, you know, I mean, I don't think any of us uh, regret the time that we take off from work. And, you know, I'm still able to have a successful practice and um, been in orthodontics for over 25 years now. One element of that life balance is to schedule your time off. Okay. So there's other elements to that life balance. And part of that is simply scheduling time to take care of yourself. Yeah. Right? Because, you know, we take care of our families, we take care of our employees, we take care of our patients. Mm-hmm. But we're not going to be able to do as good a job of, at any of that if we don't take really good care of ourselves. And that starts with the fuel that we put in our bodies mm-hmm. and trying to you know, eat very mindfully. Yeah. And, it's moving our bodies in, in a way that brings us joy and, and pleasure, right? So for me, what that looks like is that I get up in the mornings and I swim before work. And I'm on a swim team. And I'm happy to report that just last week, at the age of 53, I, I broke some of my personal records. Uh, yeah, for, Tito. For That's so awesome. So the fact that I'm still getting, getting faster and getting stronger in my 50s, I'm totally stoked about that. You know, totally pumped. Yeah. And so I've had a personal trainer for the past 15 years. And so we meet at least uh, somewhere between two and four times a week and just kind of some weightlifting and and that sort of stuff. My wife and I both really love cycling. And so we ride our bikes on the weekend. And so one of those uh, many trips that we take, at least for the last 10 years, has been a cycling trip. Mm -hmm. And we've done some really amazing cycling trips. Next month, we're actually going to be in Napa, taking a week to cycle through Napa and taste some wine and stuff. But we've done... You know, East Coast, West Coast, uh, we've done a PCH, you know, from Monterey, you know, down to, to yeah. L.A. area. Uh, we went Prague to Budapest one year. And so this is just a fun thing that, that we look forward to every year. Mm-hmm. And then I'm a water guy. And so I spend a lot of time on my boat on the weekends, windsurfing and stand-up paddleboarding and, you know, wave runners and just all kinds of fun, active stuff like that. Yeah. Just staying active. Yeah, so certainly in my 30s, I think I was just grinding away. And now that I'm in my 40s, I'm really starting to appreciate 
taking time and setting it aside and just like you said for yourself in terms of your family in terms of your health and just finding a better balance and just constantly grinding away because you know what it's a marathon it's not a sprint that's right yeah you mentioned traveling and what are some of your favorite places that you've been to well when my daughter graduated from high school we took her back to japan where she was born and that was an amazing trip because she got to meet her nanny who took care of her for the first year of her life. Oh, so, so cool. Uh, that was really special. But, um, I mean, I have to say, I really love active vacations. If I go skiing, you know, I'm a huge skier. I, I go helicopter skiing every year. I usually spend 20 to 30 days skiing every season. Mm-hmm. And so Tahoe is one of my favorite places. I just think it's the crown jewel of the U.S. And I just think it's a beautiful place. Um, So we love going to Tahoe. Uh, We love going to Europe. Uh, We've taken several boat trips in southern France and um, love going to Spain. You know, South America, been to Colombia. I love Costa Rica. Uh, Mexico is gorgeous. Um, We actually just bought a timeshare in Cabo San Lucas at an amazing resort there. So we'll be spending a little more time down there as well. You know, my wife also loves to travel and it's something that we just really have a lot of fun doing together and we, yeah. we connect when we travel. And I think that strengthens and bolsters our relationship. Mm-hmm. And so it's definitely worth it, worth the time out of the office, worth the kind of pushing the, the refresh button mm-hmm. on your psyche. And uh, it's the icing on the cake of life. That's a nice way of putting it. Well, before we wrap this up, I want to mention you have an in-office course coming up October 2nd and 3rd at Stone Oak Orthodontics in San Antonio, Texas. Tell everyone about your course. Yeah. Well, it's more than just how to use the Norris 2026 system. And, you know, that 2026 system is something that we've got, you know, now almost four years of experience using. So, yeah, there's definitely going to be some tips and tricks. And and we're going to, you know, talk about some really uh, challenging interdisciplinary cases and airway and, you know, a lot of great clinical stuff. But way beyond that, it's about the five touch points that we have with our patients, okay? Mm -hmm. And those five touch points are the pre-touch. In other words, What's your reputation in the community? How do people find out about your office, okay, before they even contact your office? What's your name like out in the community, and how can you cultivate that? Okay. We've got the first touch, okay, and that's you never get a second chance to make a first impression. So what are all the elements that go into that first impression from the new patient phone call to the new patient appointment? And that one's entitled Making Disney Jealous uh, Hmm. with the New Patient Experience. Yeah. Then we have the core touch. And the core touch means how do we be the best part of the patient's day on a daily basis? When the patient comes in, we want to be the best part of their day. Um, we're in, incorporating the fish philosophy. How do, you, how do you develop a team that embraces that philosophy mm-hmm. and feels like they have ownership in your practice? And uh, how do you cultivate that? How do you change your culture mm-hmm. uh, and so forth? So all that goes into core touch. The next step is final touch. And that is you know, when a patient gets their, their braces off or finishes their line of treatment. How do you celebrate? You know, mm-hmm. what kind of memorable event can you do to have them walk out just thinking like, wow, that was a great investment. I'm really glad we went here and I'm going to tell all my friends about it. Right. Yeah. And then the final step is what's called in touch. So how do we continue this relationship with the patient? How do we engage them through our social media, through our community karma events? You know, did you just send them little birthday cards or reminders or just keep our office Toma top of mind awareness in their minds mm-hmm. so that the, if anyone ever you know, asks about orthodontic treatment, it's just a no brainer for them. And do you learn any martial arts in the Norris course? Well, that's at the end. That's the, the extra. <laughs> yeah, you've got to pay extra for that. Yeah. <laughs> pay extra for that part. 
now, now, funny you mentioned that because so my wife is an integrative physician. Yeah. And so we're all about whole health. Okay. Yes. So uh, yes. as part of the Norris 2026 course, there is an option for participants to come in and actually she will do a full uh, blood work panel that is analyzed by the Cleveland Clinic. Oh, is that right? Lab. And so then she does a follow-on appointment Mm -hmm. to really uh, do kind of a a know-your-risk survey, and we'll review that with people at a reduced rate. Oh, that's so cool. And I think a lot of people will be interested in that. Yeah. Like I said, that weekend is so much more than just simply about the bracket, right? It's all about practice philosophy. It's about life balance. It's about just being healthy in so many different ways, and and we're going to touch on a lot of that stuff. It's going to be a blast. Plus the fact... That we're going to have a private event at a world-class jazz club. No way. And... Do you know, I love jazz. All right. So that's one night. And then the other night is a sunset dinner cruise on an 89-foot houseboat. What? On the lake. And it is spectacular. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great weekend. And look, this is one of many courses we're going to be having in the future. But that, that's pretty much going to be the, the formula for it. Okay. And you have two amazing intensive days of learning and two incredible nights of entertainment. Well, I have to say that, you know, having gone to a few meetings in my career, my favorite are actually the smaller in-office courses. I love the AO and some of the bigger meetings, but to me, sometimes it's a little bit of information overload. Maybe, uh, you know, it's great to see everyone, but it's a little bit of social overload. But I love the smaller meetings because one, I feel like I absorb a lot more information and material from an educational standpoint. But two, I actually build some new relationships with people. Whereas when I go to, we'll use AAO as an example, I tend to just sort of catch up with a few people here and there, you know, say hello, chat for five minutes. But um, It's very esoteric. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, my favorite meetings, we talked about the Dr. Sarver's in-office course. Sure. Fishbine's in office course. I'm dying to go to Stu Frost's in office course. Have yep. you done that one? It looks like an amazing one. I have not yet. We'll, but we'll do I, it together. I, I would love to do that. Yeah. 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 So my vision for this thing is to actually have 10 doctors. So 20 people total. Okay. 10 doctors and each of those doctors to bring in one of their key personnel that's going to help them implement some of these systems that they're going to be learning. Which is so smart because, you know, a doctor can get so excited about ideas and bring them back and then it's all about implementation, right? That's right. And so you've got to get like your key team player, just help you implement and help communicate that to the rest of the team. See the vision. And follow it through, right? It's just not about what you learn. It's about what you implement. Thanks so much for listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. If you like the show, please take a second to click subscribe. Also, I'd really appreciate if you could share this show with your friends. Until next time, this is Chris Setta, signing off.